Uh, let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into this special topic of mercy. Over the past few months, we have been discussing mercy as it comes to us from sacred scripture, as well as how we look at it in its action in both the uh, corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Now, last week we took up St. Therese and uh, the insights she had for us in relationship to mercy. And as we were wrapping up our discussion on St. Therese and God's divine mercy, we were focusing in on trust. Huh? I had made note of uh, St. Therese's language of going to God with confidence and love, and, and that important relationship between trusting God and moving towards God with great confidence, mindful that the, the very word confidence comes from the Latin confidere, right? Fidere means what? Uh, faithfulness, trust, huh? So we're making the point that this most concrete act and virtue of faith, trust, lies at the center of not only the spirituality of St. Therese, but also that trust is uh, the chief theme to God's divine mercy, as trust is the act and virtue that helps us to overcome our fears. We may note last week that the first homily of John Paul II was about what? Do not be afraid. Be courageous. And his last homily was about what? Jesus, I trust in you. Now, I want to reflect a bit longer with this theme of trust. In a careful study of Christ's invitation to live in God's divine providence, we find Christ exhorting us not to be anxious and preoccupied with the worries that come from worldly property and possessions, but to, what do we read in Matthew 6.33? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and the essentials for daily sustenance will be given to us. In Christ's appeal to live in God's providential care, he places an emphasis on the renunciation of self-reliance and dependency on temporal goods. His message is clear. An over-reliance upon ourselves in the material world leads to worry and a disquiet of the heart. I mean, consider the emphasis he places on this call not to be anxious and worry. Matthew 6.25, do not be anxious about your life. Matthew 6.27, and which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? Verse 28, why are you anxious about your clothing? Verse 31, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. So he's placing a very real emphasis on this word worry, anxiety, and as I noted again last week in the Greek, preoccupation. These set of verses on the heels of the call not to serve to masters highlights not only our sometimes unrelenting appetite for seeking to profit from the material world, but it also turns our attention to the spiritual world. Christ's emphasis 
on abandonment to God ought to remind us. It ought to remind us that the Lord's providential care is antecedent to our every need. That our Christian vocation is rooted in our divine sonship. A personal entrustment to God that begins to die to all of these anxieties, all of these worries, all of these preoccupations, huh? Christ's teaching on the need to not be preoccupied with worldly concerns really does emerge as a sermon on trust, does it not? And in so many ways, it is a centerpiece to Christ's own pedagogy, to Christ's own catechesis, and really as such ought to be a factor in our own catechesis as we seek to summon man into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Huh? What's more, as it relates to the Sermon on Trust, is the significance of the use of the word mammon you read of in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. The discussion on mammon is offered as a kind of prologue to the Sermon on Trust. From the Hebrew or Aramaic, we often translate mammon as wealth or property, which exposes some of what this word means. But once we get behind this term, we discover that the better translation is more literally that in which one trusts. Are you over-abandoning yourself to money or to God? Clearly teaching us that money, while it is necessary, yes, to live and to provide for, for family needs, huh? the essentials, it can become the great agent that Satan uses to destroy your relationship with God. God wants us to reprioritize, if you will, huh? that we might abandon ourselves to him for the sake of the kingdom of God, abiding in God's providential care. Many of your friends, abiding in God's providential care is meant to permeate every aspect of our life. This is what St. Therese wanted us to see, is it not? To go to God with great confidence and love, to go to God with a deeper understanding of what his mercy is all about and how he provides for us. God's providential sovereign care, again, is meant to permeate every aspect of our life. Now, that being said, I want to pause here and tease this theme out a little bit more. This theme of trust and apply it to an aspect of our everyday life. And I want to do it within the context of the mystical or mystical theology, right? And some of you right now listening are thinking to yourself, the what and the what? <laughs> well, let me explain what I intend to mean. What is the mystical? The mystical is the experience of spiritual things within ordinary life and the keen conviction that God is intervening within our everyday life. The mystical approach never just looks at something, but gazes into it and through it and perceives a new depth dimension beyond it. All of our mystical counters, if you will, disclose a new depth dimension of God's love. In this sense, we are made to see this mystical component within all of our encounters and how God desires to reveal something of his great love to us in these encounters. In other words, no encounter with others is to be viewed as independent from God's larger plan, huh? Just as Christ was caught up with the divine mission of his Father, so should we be caught up with God and the task he puts into our heart. I mean, 
There was never a moment in the life of Christ where he looked upon a situation and said, that's a coincidence. No. Jesus saw each and every moment as pregnant with eternal significance. God incidents, as it were. Because as Albert Einstein once famously said, God does not play dice. Huh? You know, far too often we disregard God's providence as mere coincidence, do we not? A concurrence of events that have no perceptible connection. This is problematic because it pushes God's sovereign care to the margins. As we have discovered, the natural outgrowth to a life of prayer and conversation with God is to see all things in light of Christ. Essentially, we are made to see that there's a divine quality to each and every moment. That each and every moment has a sacramental quality to it, if you will. This is why the spiritual life and what we do out from that life is so deeply satisfying together. One great French theologian, Jean-Pierre de Cassade, once said, if we could lift the veil and if we watched with vigilant attention, God would endlessly reveal himself to us and we should see and rejoice in his active presence in all that befalls us. And at every event, we should exclaim, it is the Lord. Beautiful. In the end, my friends, <clears throat> we are to understand life as not a series of coincidences, but God incidents, where all of our encounters ought to be cast in the light of the Holy Spirit and turned into mystical encounters, encounters that are formed and informed in the Holy Spirit, encounters that are to be caught up in this personal entrustment to God. Amen to that. That being said, regarding God's school of trust, as it has been revealed in sacred scripture and handed on down through the ages in the church's sacred tradition, through magisterial teachings and in the lives of the saints, we could honestly say that the faithful people have always more or less got it. huh? In other words, the body of Christ, to varying degrees, understood the message of God's mercy, understood the message of trust. In God's grace, they were able to overcome the wound of original sin, the false image of God that made them afraid to draw near to God and to trust in his loving goodness. But, as many historians point out, there is one point in church history, and I want to reflect into it now as we go deeper into this special topic of mercy. When God's school of trust, all of his efforts to convince us of his love and goodness did not seem to be working. They weren't getting it. And this time reached its high point in the 17th century with the heresy of Jansenism. Now in France, there were a number of movements in the 17th century that would indicate people were searching for a true Catholic spirituality for their times. These movements also reflected the confusion of the times. However, because several of them would eventually be condemned by the Catholic Church because of certain errors. And Jansenism was one of those movements. Jansenism was a spiritual movement led by a few priests, a layman, and a convent of religious sisters in a town nearby Paris. The movement itself was named after Cornelius Jansen. I, I often joke around, if you want to be famous in church history, 
start a heresy and uh, an ism will come after your name and that will be the heresy named after you, right? No, you don't want to do that, of course. I'm joking around. But here we have a bishop named Cornelius Jansen and a heresy named after him, Jansenism. And this figure, Cornelius Jansen, was a bishop in Holland who died in the 17th century in 1638. Now, Jansen had written so strongly about the absolute corruption of human nature by original sin that Pope Innocent X condemned a number of propositions of his writings in 1653 and accused him of converging with Calvinism. Jansen's supporters in France, however, thought that Jansen had been falsely accused. You know, what's going on there? Well, they thought that the real problem was that the Catholic Church, especially in France, had grown lukewarm and lax in its view of sin. In point of fact, they felt that Jansen had not been too strict on sin. They pointed to the way during this time the Jesuits approached the forgiveness of sin and the sacrament of penance to illustrate their point. The Jesuits, the Jansenists complained, were not calling people to repentance because they were too concerned not to offend people. Now, we have to admit, <laughs> there was some substance to this criticism. And the Catholic Church did require a stronger call to repentance in the confessional. However, the Jansenists also had a problem with their high ideal of perfectionism and austerity in the Christian life, which they ultimately wanted to establish for all Catholics. Over time, Jansenism turned into a kind of joyless moral rigorism. Jansenism was turning the spiritual life into nothing but a series of painful penances and deprivations that only the elite gold medal winners get to receive God's love. In the end, the Jansenist would proclaim God's wrath, God's justice, God's punishment with no regard for his infinite mercy. And let us remember what we talked about as it relates to the relationship between mercy and justice. Mercy without justice is disillusionment, and justice without mercy is cruelty. Now, that being said, as we have already discussed at various points in our treatment of mercy, the other extreme must be avoided here, that extreme of a permissive conscience that does not recognize the horror of sin and the constant need for genuine repentance and gradual transformation in Christ those principles that are so essential to our life in Christ. Okay, so we have this heresy that had begun to wage this war inside many hearts. And within this historical framework steps in a little nun from a convent in France. And oh, by the way, I am not talking about St. Therese of Lisieux, rather a nun that predates her by close to 200 years, St. Margaret Mary, St. Margaret Mary. On December 27, 1673, when Jansenism, my dear friends, was in full swing, Jesus, appearing on the cross, revealed to this blessed soul the ocean of anguish that was in his divine heart. Speaking to her in a tone of sadness and grief, he said to her, Behold this heart that so deeply loves mankind, that is spared no means of reproof, wearing itself out until it was so utterly spent. 
this meets with scant appreciation from most of them. All they get back is ingratitude. Witness their irreverence, sacrileges, their coldness, and their contempt for me in this sacrament of love. Mm. I'm made to think about the importance of the virtue of gratitude here in, in hearing our Lord's words. What is gratitude? Gratitude is first the homage of the heart as it is expressed in the worship of the, of the Eucharist, huh? Hence why ingratitude is contempt for what did Christ say? Contempt for me in this sacrament of love. And second, we should say that gratitude is the memory of the heart. We should speak here to the virtue of recollection as we speak to gratitude as the memory of the heart. Why? Because the virtue of recollection speaks to the soul that recollects is the soul that gathers within himself all that God has done for him. The recollected soul enters into the memory of the heart. Consequently, the recollected soul remains in that disposition of gratitude. Now, on another occasion, the Lord appeared in front of the exposed Blessed Sacrament with a similar message to Margaret Mary, and she describes that experience in this way. Jesus Christ, my Master, appeared to me. He was a blaze of glory, his five wounds shining like five suns, flames issuing from all parts of his human form, especially from his divine breast, which was like a furnace, and which he opened to disclose his utterly affectionate and lovable heart, the living source of all those flames. It was at this moment that he revealed to me the indescribable wonders of his pure love for mankind. The extravagance to which he had been led for those who had nothing for him but ingratitude and indifference. This hurts me more, he told me, than everything that I had suffered in my passion. Listen to that. This hurts me more than everything that I had suffered in my passion. Even a little love in return and I should regard all that I have done for them as next to nothing and look for a way of still doing more. But no, all my eager efforts for their welfare meet with nothing but coldness and dislike. Do me the kindness, then, you at least, of making up for all that ingratitude as far as you can. Mm. So it was that, of course, St. <laughs> Margaret Mary responded to this exhortation from our anguished Lord to give her entire life in gratitude for the Sacred Heart. And we should say how we ought to take the place of St. Margaret Mary, as if our Lord was speaking to us. Now, as it relates to the response of this devotion, this devotion to the Sacred Heart, which, oh, by the way, we celebrated last week, right? Ultimately, we would see this private revelation, give impetus to a powerful process of renewal within the Catholic Church, and it was not exclusive to France. It really spread throughout Europe, bringing people back to the heart of divine revelation and in sacred scripture. It encouraged, if you will, the virtue of recollection and brought people back to see God for who he truly is. It got them to stop running away from God but now running towards God, towards God 
in his merciful love. And we should say something else here. It would be easy to see how the Jansenist tendency could hijack devotion to the Sacred Heart. What do I mean? Well, does not devotion to the Sacred Heart encourage reparations for the sins committed against the Sacred Heart? How many of us have entered into this kind of marathon of sacrifices, if you will, where over time we find ourselves sapped of joy and all that life-giving energy that the Holy Spirit wants to pour into our hearts and in turn pour into the hearts of others around us? Certainly, devotion to the Sacred Heart encourages sacrifices and a heart willing to suffer for the sake of the sins committed against the Sacred Heart, but not out of this kind of empirical obedience. But once again, with that all-important word we have talked about in the past, that word of invitation, once we realize that it is God incarnate who is inviting us to share in his own sacrificial feast, then by God's grace, we are more apt to surrender to the flames of love that issue from all of his wounds. Mm. Amen to that. Now, I'm looking up at the clock. We have a few minutes left as we're touching upon these key figures in history and the themes which emerge from these key figures. I want to touch upon one more, one very important figure, and that's St. Alphonsus Liguori. Now, we talked about St. Alphonsus Liguori in our Monday evening themed night of uh, great Christian thinkers, but I want to bring him into this discussion. St. Alphonsus Liguori, born at the end of the 17th century, would have been familiar, as you can well imagine, at a very early age with what? Jansenism, but also the revelations of St. Margaret Mary, right? After his formation of priesthood in both spiritual and systematic theology, that is, St. Alphonsus Liguori's formation, he was ordained a priest and his fame quickly spread for his pastoral and catechetical zeal. That zeal that understands the unique relationship that exists between understanding the faith and in turn how that faith is applied to bring people into a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Liguori stood in the path of this heresy of Jansenism, this heresy that fomented fear and presented a grim and severe face of God, very remote from the face revealed to us by Jesus. It was in his work entitled Moral Theology that St. Alphonsus proposed a balanced and convincing synthesis of the requirements of God's law, God's law that is engraved on our hearts, fully revealed by Christ and interpreted authoritatively by the church, of course. End of the dynamics of the conscience and human freedom, which in adherence to truth and goodness permit the person's development and fulfillment. What's more, St. Alphonsus also recommended to pastors of souls and confessors that they be faithful to the Catholic moral doctrine, assuming at the same time a charitable, and this of course would be very important (laughs) during this time, a charitable understanding and gentle attitude towards the penitents that they might feel accompanied 
supported, encouraged on their journey of faith and of Christian life. What is St. Alphonsus talking about here? Well, if you have been with me on Tuesday evenings, you know, he is talking about what? That personal accompaniment that Pope Francis has been speaking to, taking the person by the hand, giving the person the experience of being listened to, and then pastorally bringing them in to the heart of truth. St. Alphonsus never tired of repeating that priests are a visible sign of the infinite mercy of God who forgives and enlightens the mind and heart of the sinner so that he or she may convert and change his life, her life. So popular was St. Alphonsus Liguori's piety and zeal that Pope Pius VI, on learning of his death in 1787, which occurred after great suffering, exclaimed, he was a saint. (laughs) And he was not mistaken, of course. Uh, St. Alphonsus was canonized in 1839, and in 1871 was declared a doctor of the church. A doctor of the church. We talked about St. Therese of Lisieux uh, in our time together last week as a doctor of the church, right? Now St. Alphonsus Liguori, another figure, very important to our narrative on mercy if we're going to understand the nature of mercy. Now in the light of uh, St. Alphonsus's um, work, Moral Theology, and what he meant to the age he lived in, Pope Pius XII in 1950 proclaimed him patron of all confessors and moral theologians. How about that? Patron of all confessors and moral theologians. Why are we talking about St. Alphonsus Logori? Well, there you go. Huh? Here we are talking about mercy, and it is right that we talk about St. Alphonsus Logori, not only because of what he meant during that time when Jansenism was in full steam, but also because of the message he has for us today during this extraordinary jubilee year of mercy. Hmm. Amen. Now, what else is of note here, especially in the light of the revelations of Margaret Mary, St. Margaret Mary, was his work, Visits to the Blessed Sacrament, which went through 40 editions, 40 editions in his own lifetime because of its popularity. So here you can see the seamless unity between Margaret Mary and St. Alphonsus Liguori, especially as they are two great saints that counter-argue the Jansenist tendency. Okay, I am looking up at the clock and we are out of time. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, observations, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com or again, you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. Okay, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, 
The website is joeholcraft.org.